If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. This is Episode 7 of Cold Case Canada, The Christmas Day Murder of Lila Anderson. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. On Boxing Day morning in 1959, 10-year-old Jackie Hunter and his friend, 8-year-old Colin Woodward, were walking Toby, Jackie's seven-month-old puppy. They cut through the city-owned land at Knight Street and 45th Avenue in South Vancouver, and they stumbled over the naked body of Lila Anderson. They found Lila lying on her back in mud and water in a ravine, her body hidden from the street by a mound of soft earth. Her right arm was extended out, and the only clothes she had on were silk stockings that hung around her ankles and a black skirt which the killer had wrapped around her head. Her red coat lay nearby, ripped from her body in the struggle. The boys raced home and brought Bill Hunter, Jackie's dad, back to the ravine. Hunter managed to flag down Constable Falconer in his police car. The constable climbed down the ravine, checked for a pulse, and finding none, immediately called for assistance. Police found a large rock next to Lila's body that was covered in blood. Another pile of rocks near the body splattered with bloodstains and human tissue suggested that the murderer may have smashed her head against them. Police found Lila's purse in a pool of water nearby. They identified her by its contents, a BC electric bill and a bank account book. The bill and the bank book and a little over $3 in change were strewn about the ground. An autopsy performed the next day found that Lila died after receiving five heavy blows to the head, delivered with such force that her skull was smashed in. All of the cuts showed ragged edges, and with a massive fragmentation of bone, the pathologist determined that a heavy, blunt instrument, possibly a tire iron, had caused the injuries. While there was evidence of sexual assault, rape couldn't be determined because she was so badly beaten. Lila's time of death was fixed at Christmas night, less than an hour after she'd eaten steak and onions for dinner. Lila was originally from Rock Creek, a small town located between Asoyas and Grand Forks in British Columbia. Her parents were dead and she had three brothers and a sister living in BC's interior. Lila had been working in a restaurant in Penticton, but when war broke out, she joined the Royal Canadian Air Force as a sergeant cook, where she met her fiancé, who was later killed in the war. After she was discharged in 1945, Lila moved to Vancouver and became the assistant night manager 
at the White Lunch restaurant. A few years later, she took a job as a cashier for the Safeway store at Broadway and Main Street that was quite close to her new home. Newspaper pictures show an attractive and pleasant-looking 38-year-old woman with brown eyes and brown hair streaked with grey. At the inquest, she was described as well-nourished, well-developed female, standing just over 5 feet 5 and weighing 130 pounds. Lila bought a property at 30 East 15th Avenue in Vancouver's Mount Pleasant area. She drew up her own blueprints for a boarding house, hired a construction crew, and supervised the work. When it was finished, she moved into the bottom suite and rented out the upstairs. A contractor who worked on Lila's house told a reporter that she knew more about plumbing and carpentry than any woman he'd ever met. Relatives and friends painted a picture of a quiet woman who liked her own company and preferred to live alone. She didn't drink or smoke, she laughed at funny things, and she was friendly to small children. She had a nice smile, they said. Lila was also friendly to her customers and her neighbours. She loved talking about her house and her garden. But otherwise, she kept to herself. She was known in the neighbourhood as Miss Anderson. Lila made it clear that a private life was her own business and she expected her neighbours and her friends to respect that. What they did know was that Lila loved to garden, she loved Mikey, her eight-year-old black-and-white cat, and she seemed happy enough to stay home and listen to the radio or watch television. Her neighbours said she never talked about any men that she may have been dating, and they never saw men come to the house. While this shouldn't be important, it was, because at one point, Police believed that she was a madam, and that may also have affected the length and enthusiasm of the investigation. Lila was the nicest kind of girl, her sister Vida told reporters. She never was one to live it up or to go out on the town. She wasn't the kind to be afraid of the dark or of being alone. She worked six years at the White Lunch on Hastings Street and left to walk home every night at 1.30am. She was never afraid. In the Vancouver of 1959, a fiercely independent, single and capable woman was clearly a puzzle to family, friends and the media. Lila had attended the midnight service at Christchurch Cathedral on Christmas Eve. Police appealed through the media for anyone who might have seen her sitting with somebody at the service. Always a stylish dresser, she was wearing a beige-coloured hat with gold trimming. The major problem for police was establishing a timeline for Lila's murder and to find out who she had dinner with on Christmas Eve. The media ran her photo in the newspaper and a description of her clothes. She was wearing her favourite red coat with a leopard skin lining. Friends told police that she walked like a queen, with a regal bearing. But even with this description and media photos of the clothes she was wearing, police were unable to find anyone who saw her that night. Lila told several neighbours and family members that she'd plans for Christmas dinner, but she was vague about the details. 
Lila talked to her sister Vida at 2pm on Christmas Day. She told her that she was going out for Christmas dinner, but didn't mention where or with whom. Vida said the impression Lila gave her was that she was going out for dinner with several friends. Lila, she said, would have ordered a steak, like she usually did. Vida's son Bud was studying at Vancouver Technical School and staying with Lila. He told his mother that Lila had bought a 20-pound turkey on sale the week before, and they were both sick to death of turkey. Every Christmas, Lila sent a box of chocolates and two bottles of booze to her next-door neighbour, Anita Quinville. Anita called Lila around 3pm on Christmas Day to thank her for the gift, and Lila told her she would pop over the next day to visit. She sounded happy, the neighbour told a reporter. She said she would come, but that she was in a hurry, because she was going out for dinner with friends. Normally, Lila rented out three apartments to tenants, but two had left in recent weeks while she was doing repairs to the house, and the only one living there were the Bows. Mildred Bow told police that she heard Lila moving about downstairs around 5pm on Christmas night. But police think she left home earlier than that, around 3.30pm, and perhaps Mildred had heard Lila's cat. All the neighbours were canvassed, but no one saw her leave home that evening. Lily Pageham, a friend who'd served with Lila in the RCAF, told a reporter that she highly doubted that Lila was out on a date. If she was, said Lily, Lila would have insisted on being picked up at the house. She was probably forcibly picked up while she was waiting for the bus in the area where she was killed, Lily told a reporter adding that she thought it would take more than one person to kill Lila. She was so strong and she would fight back, said Lily. Lila's brother Albert agreed. She was very strong, he said. Whoever did it would have had to get the first crack in. Detectives also considered that she made up the story about dining with friends so she could spend Christmas alone. And because she ate steak and not more traditional Christmas fare, police believe she'd eaten out at a restaurant shortly before she was killed. But if that was true, it seems hard to imagine that no one remembered seeing her. A bus driver came forward and said he thought he'd seen her on his bus travelling from Broadway and Main Street to 41st and Main about 5pm on Christmas Day. When police went knocking on doors around 45th and night, a few residents told them they'd heard screams a little after 6pm, but no one had thought to call police. Police believe that the first attack on Lila started at an unlighted bus stop where they found a patch of blood and hair on the ground. She was then likely forced into a car and driven a short distance down 45th Avenue and onto the city-owned yards which locals told them was a popular make-out place. On Christmas night 1959, though, it was a muddy mess, in limbo while the city was deciding what to do with it. After analysing the tyre marks, investigators said that she was dragged from the car and in the struggle lost her coat, glove and white buttons from her blouse. Further into the field were the marks of the third attack, 
where her bra and underwear was ripped from her body. Police found samples of hair and blood from the murder scene and scrapings from Lila's fingernails. Police said it had all the earmarks of a sex killing. Nothing was done to preserve the crime scene. Rather, it was treated as a kind of morbid tourist attraction. What the rain didn't destroy, the onlookers did. On January 2nd, 1960, the Vancouver Sun ran a front-page story next to photos and stories of the New Year's Day polar bear swim. It ran with the headline, City Murder Site Attracts Hundreds, Morbid Sightseers Go Inspecting. Neighbouring residents reported Cars drove by the site throughout the day and night. Many people got out and inspected the spot where she was found. They came two or three at a time all day long. They just seemed curious. They'd stop their cars to have a look or get out and inspect the spot. Chief George Archer told the media, It's a dreadful commentary on a type of city as ours, that such a crime could occur. Someone must have seen her travelling about the city or at a Christmas dinner. Yet not one single witness has come forward to help with the investigation. The year before Lila's murder, Evelyn Roche was stabbed to death walking home from the bus. Three months later, the Pauls became Vancouver's first triple murder. The house where they were killed, just two blocks from where Lila's body was found. Then Harry Randall, an eccentric businessman, was found murdered in his South Vancouver home. From all accounts, 1959 had been just as brutal. Aside from Lila's murder, police were investigating three other murders. That of West End businessman Charles Chatton, 24-year-old Ruth Dean, and the mystery killing of a railway news agent, Johann Strigel. And then, of course, there are all the sexual assaults and attacks against women that was still unsolved. Just the week before Lila's murder, 15-year-old Joan Pallett was attacked and nearly killed after she got off a bus at 9pm at East 54th Avenue and Knight, less than two blocks from where Lila Anderson's body was found and two blocks from the Paul's house. Joan said that her attacker had a wild look, like he was half crazy. She thought he was between 14 and 18 years old Heavy set, with light brown curly hair, bushy eyebrows, and he wore a black jacket, blue pants, and heavy shoes. He followed her from the bus stop, the same one where Lila was taken. But Joan didn't pay much attention at first, because he was young and he was walking with his hands in his pockets. When he caught up to her, he grabbed her shoulder and he stabbed her twice in the back and once in the side with a switchblade knife. Four days after Lila's murder, 20-year-old Mary Bonk was attacked in the same South Vancouver area. Mary told police she was attacked at around 10pm while walking to the bus stop on Main Street. She said her attacker looked awful, almost crazy. They struggled and she screamed and ran. He drove off in a late model car. Now, I'm not suggesting that one young man was responsible for every murder, stabbing and sexual assault that took place in Vancouver in 1958 and 1959. But there does seem to be a similar pattern 
between the murders and assaults on Evelyn Roche, Dorothy Pauls, Lila Anderson, Mary Bonk and Joan Pallet. And it does seem to stretch the imagination that there could be five or more different crazed young men operating in exactly the same area. While the police appeared to be hunting completely different people, the media made the link, drawing a terror map that showed the proximity of the Paul's house to where Lila's body was found, as well as a knife attack on Joan Pallet. And I've put a copy of that map on my website. At first glance, there didn't seem to be much in common with the murder of Evelyn Roche in April 1958. The Pauls family, three months later, Lila Anderson, and the attacks on Joan and Mary the following year. But aside from the brutality and the proximity of the murders, there are other similarities. Evelyn, Lila, Helen, Joan and Mary were all coming home after taking a bus at night. None of the victims were robbed. Dorothy and Lila were both found with their heads wrapped with an item of clothing and bedding. And there was at least an attempt at rape on Dorothy, Lila and Evelyn. We don't know what would have happened to Joan and Mary if they hadn't escaped. There was another possible connection. Before the Pauls bought their house on East 53rd, they stayed with a Mennonite family in the same area. When I looked at city directories, I found a couple called the Bows and their son who lived just two doors down. In 1958, the Bows, he was a porter with the Canadian Pacific Railway, and his wife, Mildred, also called Margaret, was shown to be living at Lila's boarding house. At the time of her death, they were her only tenants. This, of course, could be completely coincidental, and I've no way of knowing if the Bows were ever checked or came up on the police radar. The serial killer theory also made sense to me after I talked to Neil Boyd, head of the criminology department at Simon Fraser University. In the late 1950s, the population of Vancouver was still around 400,000 or less. And as Neil Boyd said, what are the odds that there were three different murderers at large at the same time? Dr Boyd says that predatory sexual serial attacks are very rare. And when there's a similarity over a relatively short period of time, that tends to point to the likelihood that it's the same person. I also spoke with Dr Orb, a Vancouver-based forensic psychologist who consults with the police about serial killers and sexual offenders. She told me that while opportunity is important, so is availability and proximity. People, she says, commit more crime in the location where they live. The province newspaper started a hidden witness program, which sounds like an early, much more complicated version of Crime Stoppers. The idea was that people with the information could go straight to the newspaper and remain anonymous, and the newspaper would in turn pass the information along to the police. Nothing would be passed along that could identify the tipster, such as their handwriting or fingerprints on the letter. Potential witnesses were told to write what they knew on a piece of paper. They would then choose their own code combination of two letters 
and any four numbers. Write the combination of letters and four numbers near the bottom of the page in the middle. Then write it exactly the same way in the lower right-hand corner of the paper. They would then tear off the corner of the paper with the code combination on it and mail it to the province on Hastings Street. If the information panned out, they were told to bring the torn-off piece of paper with a code to the province office and collect their $6,000 reward. Police told the press that more than 50 men had been checked out who'd been accused of the murder by letter or through telephone calls to the police. Yet with all this evidence that Lila was likely forcibly attacked and taken from a bus stop by a stranger, police spent months searching for a man that she may or may not have had dinner with. But if she did go out with someone on a date and he had a car, why would she be waiting at a bus stop? A Canadian press story with a headline, Vancouver Slain, Police Seeking Dinner Partner, went into newspapers from Nanaimo to Ottawa. Another headline read, Police Hunting for Mr X, Murder Woman's Date. According to these stories, and against anything that seemed to make any sense at all, because Lila told no one she had a date, the only thing that she said was that she was having Christmas dinner with friends. So police were basing this new line of inquiry on the basis of a conversation seen by Lila's boss at the Safeway store. Lila's boss told police that he'd seen Lila chatting to a man on Christmas Eve. He described the man as being in his late 30s, about six feet tall, weighing around 200 or more pounds, with an athletic build, dark wavy hair, dark eyes, and a fresh olive complexion. He was neatly dressed, and oh yeah, he spoke with an accent. Police went door-to-door in South Vancouver, asking about the mystery man, and posted the description in two neighbourhood churches. The notice read, Lila Anderson was 38 years old, looked approximately 30 years of age, 5 foot 8, 145 pounds, dark hair with a little grey in hair. Attractive in looks and appearance. Very good posture when walking. It is known that the above woman had made a date to meet a man Christmas Day. Well, no, it wasn't. Police had assumed that she'd made a date with a guy that she just happened to be talking with. But while police were chasing down Lila's mystery and unconfirmed date and checking out tips, two other women went to the press complaining that their information about the murder wasn't being taken seriously. Both women, who lived within blocks of Lila, said that a shabbily dressed, unshaven and dirty-looking man with big hands covered in nicotine stains came to their houses shortly before Christmas. He showed them a newspaper clip with a photo of a woman who looked like Lila, and he asked if they knew her or had ever seen her. It's unclear if they were ever interviewed by police. At the end of March, three months after Lila's murder, the Vancouver Sun printed a story saying that the case was at a standstill, and extra police who were called into work on the murder had now been reassigned to other duties. In January 2019, Almost four years after Lila's story was published in my book, Cold Case Vancouver, I received an email from Ross Duar. 
Ross had always known he was adopted, but it wasn't until 1982 that he found out that his mother was Lila Anderson and that she came from Rock Creek, British Columbia, and that she was murdered in 1959. Rock Creek was once a booming mining town. Now it has a population of around 300 people, and it's located in the South Okanagan area of BC, just north of the US border. Ross decided to try and find his biological mother's family and the identity of his father. This was pre-internet, so Ross wrote to the postmaster at Rock Creek, and he discovered that Lila had three brothers and a sister and a horde of cousins around his own age. One of his uncles had passed away. One was living in Selmo, about a three-hour drive from Rock Creek, and the other brother and sister lived in Vancouver. Only one of the brothers and his wife knew about Ross's birth. The rest of the family only learned of Ross's existence when police told them after her murder. They also learned that she'd given birth to a daughter to the fiancé who was killed in the war, and Lila had taken the girl to Ontario to live with the child's grandparents. If Ross's newly found family knew the identity of his father, they refused to tell him. Looking over my notes when we chatted last, I believe that was about 18 months ago, and you'd been in touch with a VPD cold case detective, and was that the last contact? Yeah, he said the file is so old and decrepit and everything, and he more or less said he'd rather that I didn't look at it, and I said, well, all right, then, if that's the way you feel, then I guess i got to live with it. When did you find out that Lila was your mother? I found out in 1982. Right, and one aunt knew about you. She wanted to adopt me, but Lila said no. She wanted me to go to somebody that wasn't related to the family. And she put the ad in paper, like, free to good home, one baby boy and all this. My mom read the ad because they were married in 34. And so they couldn't have children. So my mom said to my dad, we're getting dressed up and going for an interview because my mom could be a very sweet person and everything and by this time they had their own home and they lived in New Westminster and they were married 13 years they were very stable and all that then my aunt with Vita she said I'm you know I'm very glad that Lila did it that way because like no Lila didn't want some government person to decide where I went she wanted to decide on her and what was your dad's reaction to getting a baby from the classifieds Said, my mom said, we're going to get all dressed up and going. And he said, I don't think so. He said, it'd be like getting a vacuum cleaner. But, he, but after, after they seen me in that, you know, then they said, okay, well, yeah, it was a pretty good vacuum cleaner. Did she ever try and contact you or your parents? Who, Lila? Yeah. No, no. no. And you knew you were adopted, though, did you? Oh, I knew that. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Did, did you ever find out who your biological father was? No, no. I, I never did. It was Annie's first wife. She knew, so I asked, but she said no. She said Lila swore, you know, secrecy not to tell anybody. So I've got a, I got a feeling that he was probably married. Did it seem like a long-term relationship that they'd had? Do you think? Or? Yeah, I, the way I, the feelings that I got is they knew each other when they were kids. I know she was engaged during the war and her fiancé was killed, but you were born in 47, so that was a few years before that. 
I understand she had a girl in that relationship. So you have a half-sister out there somewhere? Yeah, somewhere in Ontario. He was a pilot. She was a cook in Comox, so I guess they hooked up there. And then he got killed during the war, shot down. Mm -hmm. And so then when the little girl was born, she went on the train to Toronto to give her to his parents. I mean, I'm assuming she would have been born in 42 or 44 or somewhere like that, so she'd be anywhere from three to five years older than me. And did you try to track them down at all? Well, I I have tried, but not with any success. You have his name, though, do you? No, I don't have anything. I tried with my two MPs, and I just have run into brick walls everywhere I go. I gather, Ross, you got your birth certificate, so the name of the father wasn't on it. My birth certificate, it shows my adopted name, yeah. So, in a perfect world, what would you like to see happen? I would like to know who my dad is, because, I mean, I could have half-brothers, and I'd like to know who my uh, my half-sister out there is. I'll be 73 next month. Better I'll... sooner than later. Well, yeah, somebody might know something. Although Lila Anderson was murdered over 60 years ago, it's possible that a murderer is still alive. He'd likely be in his late 70s or early 80s. If you have any information about this or any other murder, please contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or through their website, solvecrime.ca. And if you knew Lila and have any idea of the World War II pilot from Ontario to whom she was engaged and who was killed during the war, or the name of the man she was seen between 1945 and at least 1947 in Vancouver or Rock Creek, please contact me. Lila's son Ross is now 73 years old, and he'd like to find his half-sister, who may still live in Ontario. He'd also like to find any half-siblings from his biological father, who may still be alive and possibly living in British Columbia. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Please visit my website, evelazarus.com, for more information on my books and podcasts. And if you'd like to join in the conversation about this and other murders, check out my Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. I'm Eve Lazarus and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934 there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher. Podcatcher.